Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. How has your week gone? Hi, Laura. Very well, thank you. It's another busy week. Um, I'm just preparing for a webinar that I'm hosting for the grocer on plant-based and the plant-based trend. Very interesting area. Um, so that's coming up later in October. Um, I'll put the uh, the link in the show notes. So if anyone's listening who's um, who's interested in that area, I think it'll be a really interesting uh, discussion with lots of experts um, on the panel. I should also say that um, I have another podcast that's just gone live. So I'm very excited that I'm hosting the Digital Shelf Cast, which is a podcast uh, put together by the team at eFundamentals. And it's very much focused on e-commerce. It's a monthly podcast um, that gives you lots of tips and tricks and, and great insight if you're interested in e-commerce. And again, I will be putting the link in the show notes for that. I'm looking forward to listening to that to see if it has as much northern banter as this one. Slightly less northern banter. I can definitely, uh, I can say that. <laughs> <Look forward laughs> How's your week been? Yeah, great week, thank you. Um, all roads for me at the moment lead to our Meet Business Women UK and Ireland conference, which is taking place on the 13th of October. This was our physical conference planned for April and um, no surprise, we're running it virtually. But we've uh, we've got loads of different um, interactive options on the day, which uh, it'll be interesting to see if we, hopefully we won't have to, but if we have to use them again next year to trial them on the 13th. So really looking forward to to seeing our, our UK and Ireland community then. And we've got a great show lined up today, haven't we? We do indeed. We're joined by Josie Morris from Woolcall. Woolcall is a really interesting, uh, innovative packaging company uh, that works with uh, a lot of food producers and, and food suppliers who are sending out online food orders. So she's got great perspective on on what's been happening in the um the food and grocery space since covid we've had some fantastic feedback on the pick list again this week please do like and subscribe uh, through your normal podcast channels and let's start the show josie welcome to the show we're really pleased to have you on thank you for inviting me i've been very excited about this Excellent. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to the food industry? Okay, so um, I'm the managing director of a packaging company. So packaging, maybe not directly food, but a um, packaging company that produce insulated packaging using sheep's wool, um, but for the shipment of food in the post. So um, from a link point of view, um, we have pretty much not 80 to 90 percent of our business is working with food companies who ship out food and you must have had um some interesting times in in the wake of covid and and the sort of massive increase we've seen in online deliveries tell us a little bit about what impact that's had on on your business 
So we've been really fortunate um, and I'm very humbled and grateful for that fact really um, uh, in that we've actually um, kind of it's had quite a, a positive effect. Um, our customer base is basically people shipping food online and what that means is people more people have tried to access food online because they've been stuck at home and they can't go to the shops or they've been isolating and so I think it's opened up it's accelerated a market that was already there um, and we supply packaging that allows those those online food companies to send their food chilled overnight to nationally basically so um, as you can imagine everyone buys cheese online now therefore uh, they need our packaging <laughs> so it's been it's been as I say positive impact so you know we're very grateful for that yeah and it's, it's actually it's great to hear um a, a positive story as well because I think there's so much we talk so much about some of the you know obviously really significant negative impacts from the crisis but um it's it's actually really nice and encouraging to hear that of course there are um, businesses like yours that um, that really have, have managed to turn this into an opportunity as well. And you've brought a very interesting selection of articles for us to discuss as well. Why don't you tell us about your first pick? Okay, so uh, my first pick, I'm a massive fan of food um, and I'm a massive fan of trends and, and new foods coming through. Um, so I thought I'd look at trends and the first pick I've got is from The Grocer. Um, it's by Ellis Walthorne and it's five trends that will shape Christmas 2020 according to Marks and Spencers. Um, one of the other reasons I picked this was because I think Christmas is going to be a bit different this year. So I thought it'd be quite interesting to look at what the, like the, the supermarkets are thinking are going to be the trends for this year um, and get some ideas for myself really. From what I can do for Christmas this year as well. <laughs> and and what were some of the trends that um, that really caught your eye there? What what stood out to you from that article? So um, there's a couple that I kind of um, I'm quite excited about if they happen. Um, is um, there's one concept called mini masses, um, and it's around I guess people looking with with smaller gatherings happening. So I've kind of taken that that they're saying that with smaller gatherings you have more gatherings so maybe you have two or three gatherings and you have more food so and then you might have different selections of food so maybe food that's a bit easier to cook um so and and kind of alternatives to the, to the big turkey so i thought that's quite interesting you know trying different types of meats maybe or or even for the vegans or for the vegetarian options is looking at different types of options there um and the probably the scratch cooking people who have been at home um, really looking at, um, you know, they, they've, they've kind of maybe got a passion for cooking because they've had a bit more time, you know, not with commuting into work. So, you know, people maybe challenge themselves a bit more um, and going for like the homely Christmas. Um, and, a, and, a, and a shout out, I think, to the gin index. <laughs> <laughs> people drinking more gin, more specialist gin, which I'm completely on board with. Um, yeah, that one definitely definitely caught my eye as well. And I love the um they they've got I think MS in particular have done some really beautiful packaging with some of their um their gin ranges as well. Yeah. Uh, I might I might give up my address at this point for MS. <laughs> <laughs> 
Those of you that follow me on Twitter will know this time last year, or probably at October time, I was on an absolute mission for their Snow Globe Gin. Uh, and I probably went about around about six or seven stores because I thought, I, I want this gin. But you just couldn't find it anywhere, so much so. I even had my dad parked outside my local M&S at 8am in the morning when the <laughs> delivery came to try and get hold of it. And it was like, so we only get 10 bottles every day and lo and behold, he, he couldn't manage it. So when the, the new... A snow globe gin came in over the summer I bagged some of that but I was really intrigued by the article um, about the the new gin with the, the light bulb in it Of and unsurprisingly I've bought some of that as well but the price differential that, that it's £15 for the normal snow globe gin but with the little light bulb in it it's £18 so how you can premiumise a bottle of spirits like that with just putting a simple light bulb underneath and how much social media traction that's had is absolutely phenomenal and who would have thought it bringing a bit of theatre to to a spirits category I think it's, it's done them a, a world of good in terms of coverage yeah I'm, I'm very impressed that you are already it's um you know October early October and you're already on the case for your um for, for your Christmas merchandise you're way more organized than I could possibly be <laughs> that's all I've bought <laughs> I think I heard you say summer you bought your gin then but I think that was that was summer so maybe a few more months ago yeah, I know it's interesting that I and maybe that's something for us to watch in terms of these trends because that winter line did so well for them then they relaunched it over the summer and it'd be interesting to see if we see more and more of that when these niche Christmas lines do well then do a, a slight I think it was an elderflower flavour I don't think I know it was an elderflower flavour they did over the summer and then they're back on the uh, clementine and, uh, and rhubarb uh, over Christmas yet yeah. but we can of course send our address in for a palette of that I'm sure yeah I reckon so I, sure. I was I was also really intrigued by this sort of minimus um concept that they talked about because I think it's a, it's a point really well made that of course um we are possibly going to be um much more cautious about having these large gatherings and the impact that's going to have on that kind of traditional Christmas um shop and and dinner preparations and I did wonder particularly from a mead point of view and Laura I'm, I'm you know, you can perhaps sort of speak to that a little bit as well. They have talked for some time, haven't they, about the sort of mini roast concept. And it really feels like that is something that, that could sort of come into its own. On the other hand, you do sort of wonder, you know, your, your traditional turkey producer, you know, where you really are looking at a bird that is sort of that's it's designed for that big occasion. Um, I, I do wonder just how quickly or how easily they are able to adapt to that and, and really look more at sort of individual portions having something that's suitable for, for smaller gatherings um, I imagine that that is going to be quite a challenge because the demand for those bigger bigger portions and those big centerpieces is potentially not going to be there and I think, I right. think that's that's the challenge isn't it really with 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 anything like this is the the, the offset of it you know so in some ways, you know, I say it's very exciting about a slightly different Christmas, maybe. But then at the same time, you know, the, the traditional industries that are built on this. It's interesting. My local butcher is already sending an email saying if you've got a turkey to order, get your order in by the end of November and uh, and, and bringing dates forward. And, and I feel like every year we always hear about the turkey shortage. So I think um, you're right. These 
these big birds may be challenged, but I, th I think the market will be okay. It'll be interesting on the beef side. You're right, Julia, this mini roast concept's been tried to get away for a long time. Uh, and I think it'll do well. And it's an opportunity that, and as it's mentioned in the article, M&S are great at MPD in the meat category. And and I guess across their whole store and I know the, the other retailers get a lot of inspiration from them but that whole car carcass utilisation point and putting more labour into the product when online you shouldn't you can't have people shoulder to shoulder that, that that's going to be really really costly I guess to the supply chain so as we've seen in the press over the last couple of weeks consumers are going to have to be paying more for some of these products and I suppose willing to if it feels like a premium offer but post post Christmas and into January what does that look like it'll be it'll be interesting to watch I think you mentioned Laura about the packaging side and I think you know I'm going to say this I'm from a packaging company so I'm, I'm sorry um but actually that's where your premium comes isn't it you know that's what you're saying about the lights is actually sometimes the thing you pay for is that feel and if if you don't get that feel right you then look at what you're buying and say, well, actually, you know, it, it is worth an extra pound or two to have light in, in the gin. It's a centrepiece. It's Christmas. You celebrate. Julia, what's your first article this week? So my first pick this week is from Sifted and it's an article called Totem, a new twist in the food delivery space. Um, it's an article that basically looks at a Paris-based startup called Totem, which is looking to shake up workplace snacking. Um, and the way it's doing this is with unmanned mini convenience stores that are deployed in offices. They have about 100 of these stores deployed already in France, and they've just secured some new funding to finance further expansion. This article caught my eye for a couple of reasons. So first of all, I think it fits in with a really interesting ongoing conversation that's happening about the evolution of workplace eating and snacking and particularly in, in light of COVID, of course. Uh, secondly, I've also just had an article published in The Grocer about vending machines, which I'm going to plug here, and really looking at sort of next generation vending. So this whole area of unattended retail, which is really what concepts like, like Totem are sort of falling under as well, I think is, um, is a really interesting area at the moment. And I think there's a, it's getting a lot of, uh, a lot of interest. Um, Totem this particular startup has a really interesting angle on the whole sort of um, area as well. They're obviously seeing an opportunity in light of COVID um, with workplaces really having to rethink how they supply a quality range of food and drink to office workers at a time when those workers perhaps don't want to go out on their lunch breaks. They don't want to go into stores. They don't necessarily want to go to a canteen if a canteen is available because you've got food out in the open and there's obviously, you know, quite a lot of touching and, and interaction around food as well. So what Totem does is it allows you to offer a range of products um, unmanned in a sort of unattended format. But they're doing this through a subscription model for employers, which I thought is, is really interesting we see quite a few of these unattended retail concepts in workplaces where essentially um, you have an app and you do pay as the employee for whatever items you buy. That's not how they're doing this here. They've really set this up to be a staff perk, essentially. The employer pay, pays a subscription fee, um, which sort of covers them for, for a range of, of snacks and, and foods. Um, and then the products are free at the point of purchase for employees. And they say this model that they have developed is significantly cheaper, obviously, than a traditional workplace uh, canteen or cafeteria. 
But crucially, they are claiming that it also makes them cheaper than the sort of internet-connected smart fridges that we're seeing for for some of these um, unattended retail concepts. Um, They're also seeing quite an interesting opportunity in allowing employees to have other food items delivered to their workplace via Totem. So the idea being that if Totem is already coming to your workplace once a day to deliver snacks, why not add a meal for tonight or a few grocery essentials to your order and have them conveniently delivered to work so you don't really need to be um, going out for for those, those purchases. And importantly, because there's a sort of existing channel and an existing relationship between your employer and Totem, you as the individual worker don't need to pay for delivery either. So it's a it's a really interesting model that I think speaks to just how many new business models are emerging around online food delivery, online grocery delivery. I mean, Josie, we, we talked about this right at the beginning and some of the sort of increase in demand that you have seen and just how many new players are trying to get into that area as well. Obviously, the big online food delivery giants like Deliveroo and Uber but also startups that are sort of seemingly operating in quite different spaces, you know, workplace snacks that are actually seeing an opportunity to funnel some of that demand through through their channels as well. So um, really an interesting, interesting one to watch. What did you make of it? I mean, I um, I have to say there's quite a few comments I have around it. But um, so I think um, the the subscription model is really interesting within the food sector. I think it's a model that has um, been kind of encouraged by some of the online food Vespa kits. So I think, you know, like your HelloFresh as you goose those, uh, particularly HelloFresh where you have a subscription following like a Spotify style. And now obviously iTunes have gone into, into, um, into subscription and, you know, and, and I think the subscription model within food is quite interesting. Um, and as you say, the, particularly with this one is the become, it doesn't become a subscription that an individual signs up to. It's a company one. Now, having the company I have, um, actually it's quite an attractive one because you know, often we have a chat about the fact we're hungry or you know, we've got a vending machine but it doesn't quite have everything people want. Actually, could it be something that would add value? Um, and, and also, I am quite an advocate for people coming into an office. You know, I think it's important for social interaction. So when they do choose to come into the office, you know, working from home, you're getting that balance. It's actually there's something they, they get a bit of a perk for that as well. Laura, what's the um, first article you've picked for us? My first article this week's from The Guardian. It is entitled, Second COVID-19 Wave Could Be the Knockout Punch for UK High Street. Um, and as we know, parts of the, the country are experiencing a, a bigger second wave than others. Um, and as we also know, the high street has been under pressure for, for quite some time. And this article is a, is a bit of a deep dive into what that, uh, I guess, perfect storm looks like and also reflects on a piece of research by the Global Property Development Trends, uh, an annual report which looks at what, what's happening out there in the UK high street. And the report's found that uh, as much as 12 million uh, square metres uh, of retail space um, is, is closing or is seek to look for alternative uses. And I'm really interested when it talks about alternative uses, what that, that could be. And the, and the article gives a bit more information. So it's saying 38% of executives have already switched their retail properties to other uses, whilst a further 57% are considering doing the same. 
Um, but further into the article, it's saying sometimes there's no alternative for, for repurposing and as much as 10% of retail floor space that might need to be repurposed in the short to medium term or could be or much higher in major cities eventually. Um, and then it also goes on to say that it's likely that there could be a community type focus uh, for some of these big retail stores on the high street. And we're talking predominantly non-food retail here on the high street. It also says, according to the Centre of Retail Research, almost 14,000 shops have permanently closed so far this year, almost a 25% increase on the same period last year. And then I guess it links into the conversation we've just had about um, working from the office. It, it goes on in the article to talk about um, IWG, uh, which is the organisation previously known as Regis, um, the, the, the big um, office um, letting company, I guess. Um, and there's been a lot of rumour mill over the weekend in the weekend press about what, what's going to happen to them uh, and challenges around them. Um, and a, a potential reported to axe almost 800 million worth of lease agreements within days as landlords agree to cut rents, so which could um, reduce their uh, rental contracts by 15%. And they're saying the COVID-19 pandemic is the black swan event and it has severely impacted our business and represented us with unforeseen challenges. So I guess that the reason I picked the article is that I'm always intrigued by how our high street, I guess, cross, tra uh, cross trades, not only into food, but also into non-food items, how it's been under so much pressure for the last few decades, really, but how moving people out of offices, and as we've been told over the last week, if you can work from home, work from home again, what that actually means for these small and large players within that market and what our uh, retail environment's going to look like, I guess, not only in the long term, but the real short term um, as we see more and more um, businesses coming under pressure. Josie, what, what do you see from, I guess, your local town and I guess more broadly, we've spoken a lot about the positivity abound online. I guess there is an option for some of these retailers to pivot and do more online. And I always think when I go into these small retailers, are you doing anything online? <laughs> That's a marketeer within me. Do, have you seen any spotlights on success or areas that are challenged? Yeah, I mean, I think my, this is going to sound crazy from someone who sells into the online food sector, but I really hope that the on, online doesn't overtake High Street. I mean, for me, the high street's where you go, it's, it's traditional, it's where you go to try something on, or it's where you go to have a coffee with a friend, you know, it's, it's got a lot of emotional, I guess, nostalgic feel to me. Um, and I think I'm someone, I, I actually don't like buying online, um, I like to physically see something in front of me. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of things I buy online too much sometimes. Um, but I think from a from a personal point of view, when seeing the town centre near me, you know, actually it's not too bad, but it, you can see it, you know, there are boarded up shops now. There are people who are saying, oh, don't know if I'm going to continue. Um, I was part of a local area board and already half, even before COVID, the north area of the town was pretty much gone. Um, so I think in some ways, as I was saying before, it, 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 encourages, it encourages creative thinking. But the flip side of that too is you have to have individuals with creative thinking or to have the confidence to do that. Um, so, I mean, I, I mentioned about a restaurant. There's a couple of restaurants we now supply to that have, start, have, have pivoted. So they've done that where they've gone, well, I tell you what, you know, we, we can't have people in, so we'll send it out 
And I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you guys seen that up your way. You, know, you see takeaways and things doing deliveries and, and all sorts of perhaps they wouldn't have done before. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely um, what, what's been happening, I think, all over the country. I mean, they've been, you know, here locally here um, in, in Newcastle, there have you know, been some really creative um, restaurants that have, um, you know, found a way to not only just embrace online, but also really kind of adapt their menus, because I think that's part of it as well, isn't it? You know, there are certain types of of, of menu items and food items that sort of naturally lend themselves to, to online delivery. But depending on what you make, actually that transition isn't that obvious. And I think in some cases we, we have a local um, place here that, you know, did sort of bow buns and found that they just did not travel well at all. So they pivoted to doing sushi instead and completely kind of reinvented the menu, actually sort of almost had a kind of pop-up concept within their normal restaurant space, purely because, you know, they, they clearly recognized that that transition to online needed to happen, but the the, the offering they had, the, the product range just wasn't suited to that. So I think it's put huge pressure on, on people to to be that agile and and be be that creative. And as you say, I think, of course, it's wonderful when, when that works and when people have the ability to do that and have a product range that allows for that. But there are a lot, will be lots of businesses that are good businesses and viable businesses where that pivot isn't as easy and they have been caught out massively by, by the disruption. Yeah, totally. And we, I mean, we've seen that probably um, in a couple of, a couple of, um, scenarios where I mean personally on the high street as I was saying where some really great businesses but maybe don't have the support or or even the knowledge or base or even the, the cash in the bank to bring someone in to help with those kind of things. Josie what's the second article you've picked for us? Okay so um, this might be um, uh, obvious being linked to wool <laughs> but um, actually I wanted to draw attention to this one, which is Farmers Weekly, um, and it's uh, back British farming campaign bills as trade talks continue. Um, and I think for me, this isn't about Brexit and whether you agree with Brexit or not. This actually, for me, when I when I came across this article, something I've kept an eye on, which is backing British farming. Um, and it talks about, obviously, the impact of, of the EU trade talks and, and it... Um, talking about kind of the impact of the deal um, and no deal really. Um, and, you know, one of the, the biggest striking figures is that 120 billion, um, the, the, the agri-food sector is worth 120 billion pounds to the national economy each year um, and it, it employs more than 4 million people. Now, if you put that into context, that is massive as a sector. And I think farmers do get quite a bad deal in the press sometimes. Um, and I think also farmers are typically the type of, of, of people to ask for help. You know, there's just a traditional way of doing things. They will kind of just, you know, get on with their job. They are kind of the backbone to to the to Britain almost. You know, obviously, it, it, the, the, you know, you just look at those figures and you say four million people employed within the agri-food sector. Um, and, it, and you know, it's talking about kind of supporting, um, supporting that, and, and and finding ways to back British grown and, and the British farmers. Um, it goes on to kind of 
talk about which unfortunately this was previous to this 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 call but um back in september there was um a um a badge that was that was made for backing british farming and that was um a day on the 9th of september which the mps were then encouraged to support following the eu trade deals um and then um he goes on to talk about um the agriculture bill um, and kind of making sure that domestic farm policy within the UK um, is, is protected, um, especially again, leaving from the EU. Um, and then obviously it talks about what is in the, you know, actually quite mainstream headline, which is um, to do with Jamie Oliver um, and the fact that he's been kind of supporting calls to, to not allow the US import of a chlorinated chicken. The, the, the reason really though for, for, for this article being, um, Kind of close to home really is because for me british farming isn't just about you know them harvesting harvesting the food or or, or whatever it's actually about everything that goes with the the farmer economy and it, it doesn't just start at the farmer at the gate british farming goes all the way through to the produce on the on on the shelves and i think it's quite important for more people to speak out when they have the opportunity to say number one we need to protect that when we leave the eu number two we have high food standards in in the uk um and number three i think um you know farmers don't do the best job of supporting their own in the sense that they don't shout about what they do enough and I think sometimes farmers come under criticism for just talking to themselves. You know, you can look at social media and there's conversa- a lot of conversations champion British farming talking to other farmers. So um, the, the campaign that the NFU um, pushed earlier this year in terms of getting signatories for, for standards and, and tipping over a million for that, I guess w- was amazing really to cut through into uh, mainstream consumers and get them engaged. And as you say, the the video um, that Jamie Oliver's heading up. It's interesting, that video, in terms of it's a lot of chefs, which is quite, uh, I know there's been some criticism that it should be more farmers on that, but it's nice to see because realistically it is going to be that food service area which can be buying this product. The retailers, if you if we, we do open ourselves to chlorinated chicken and hormone beef, retailers were, are already trying to differentiate on the fact that we're only British, but it is that food service area that... I guess uh, has more autonomy to, to buy different standards of products so it's interesting to see them them heading it up and and getting traction at consumer level a lot of coverage in the daily mail as well which is interesting that it's it's, it's getting red top title coverage not just uh, in the broadsheets I, and I think it wasn't just the the mail which as you say I think has actually um, really covered this um, quite quite extensively they've obviously given the, the campaign quite a lot of coverage but they've also you know, published sort of quite a wide range of comment and opinion pieces. I mean, there was Sheila Dillon from um, from from Radio Four on there. So I think they've um, they they've clearly embraced this as um, as a as a real issue that that they're they're campaigning on. But um, I think it was the Mirror this week um, as well with a with a front page all to do with food standards and and talking about differences between. US and, and UK um, production standards. So yeah, I, well, I, I totally agree. I think sometimes it can be difficult for farming issues uh, to kind of get cut through. I think what they've done, and they being, I think, largely the NFU here, what they've done really successfully is that they have framed it as not a farming issue. 
they've made this very much about no this is this is your food and this is much further it's not just about supporting farmers this is not like the the campaigns we used to see when there were milk price protests you know where again you got a little bit of of consumer cut through but it was very much about um supporting farmers and making sure they were paid a, a fair price i think the framing here has been much more about it's not just about the farmers this is about the, the the foods you're going to have to consume and the standards you're going to want to see and it goes much further it kind of goes to the heart of of who we are as a country and the standards we're we're going to be um happy to have so i'd say it's um it's a pretty impressive campaign actually and and getting that really high level support and high profile celebrity chefs um i think is is really is really important Julia, what's your second pick this week? So my second pick uh, this week is a bit of a left field one. Um, it's from Glossy and it's called Martha Stewart Sees High Potential for Boomer CBD Opportunity. So on the face of it, this is a, an article primarily about Martha Stewart launching a CBD wellness range of sort of flavoured oils, gummies and soft gels with flavours inspired by things like cheesecake. So very Martha Stewart. Um, Martha Stewart, of course, is a huge celebrity in the US. This is um, a, very much a, a North American launch. She's got a cookbook and lifestyle and retail empire behind her. So the fact that she's going into this market once again speaks to the huge potential and sort of growth opportunities around CBD. So far, so good. We all know that CBD is a, is a big trend. What's interesting here is the target demographic. Because I think CBD is often perhaps thought of as, you know, maybe a sort of millennial, possibly sort of Gen Z person's trend. And um, but actually interest among older demographics is really, really strong. This particular article cites some uh, research by CBD marketing, which found that in 2019, boomers posted about CBD on social media just as often as millennials. Um, slightly in sort of slightly different contexts, um, less as a sort of day-to-day -day relaxation thing, much more fitting in with the sort of trend around healthy aging. But it is a trend that's um, really front of mind for, for some of these older demographics as well. But the branding and positioning of a lot of CBD products doesn't necessarily resonate with that demographic, the article points out. Um, there are also some trust issues. This is a new market. It's a very crowded market. You have lots of new brands coming into the market. So consumers don't always quite know what to trust. They're not necessarily sure what products to buy into. And this is where a, a name, a brand like Martha Stewart can really make a difference. Um, she's not the only celebrity to be doing CBD lines, of course, and she's not even the only one to sort of try and go after that older demographic but she's probably the biggest name to have done so to date. So there's an expectation that it could really change perceptions of the category. And that's sort of perceptions among consumers, but also crucially with retailers. One of the points the article makes is that lots of big retailers are still a little bit nervous about the CBD category. They're nervous about the regulatory landscape. They're nervous about 
the speed with which the, the category is sort of developing and just how many new brands are coming into this area. So having a big mainstream name like a, you know, a celebrity like Martha Stewart attached to a launch has the potential to also make them feel a little bit bolder about pushing into that uh, category and really trying to target sort of you know, mainstream older consumers as well. So I thought it's a very interesting piece around just how these trends are relevant to a whole range of different age groups and also did make me wonder what the sort of UK equivalent of Martha Stewart endorsing or creating a, a CBD range for that demographic would be. I don't know, Josie, can you think of someone who you think would be able to kind of move the dial in, in that in, uh, to, uh, to that same extent? Do you know what? The first person that came to mind was Judy Dench, and I don't know why. <laughs> maybe <laughs> Helen Mirren. That would be a coup. <laughs> yeah, or Helen Mirren, maybe. In fact, Helen, I think Helen Mirren's probably a little bit more of a, um, a risque Judy Dench, isn't she? So I would say Helen yeah, Mirren. Yeah, she's quite naughty, um, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. Martha Stewart's quite an interesting one, isn't she? As a, as, a, as, a, as a character, I think she's got that kind of slightly um, edginess to mm -hmm. her, obviously. Um, but then she's also got that mumsy kind of soccer mum, American soccer mum feel. So I think in some ways this sits perfectly with her. If it's something that's going to help, um, you know, whether it's, it improves quality of life, whether it's improving of, you know, skin conditions, whether it's improvement of joint issues, anything like that, you know, I'm, I'm very much behind kind of the more, I guess, natural medicines. I think you touched upon regulatory. And I think, you know, obviously what we were just saying about you know, the, the, the meat and, and all that is, there is always a risk with these things, isn't there? That you get the dodgy, the dodgier, um, the dodgier brands coming through. And I think that for me, I'm all for these kind of um, um, natural remedies. Um, but I think there's also got to be some form of fast regulatory guidelines coming through from that. You're more aspirational than me. I was going to say Mary Berry. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, Mary. <laughs> she, she can use it as an ingredient but she'll probably be a bit cheaper than uh, than BAFTA-winning um, <laughs> Helen Mirren. <laughs> Not surely, though. She's quite sought after. <laughs> Laura, what's your second pick for us? So my second pick this week is from Business Insider, and it's pandemic pallets filled with stockpiled items are reportedly gaining popularity at grocery stores ahead of the winter months. Uh, and this is a US article um, running off a, an earlier Wall Street Journal report from uh, this week. And this is marching from the fact that 21 states in the US have growing COVID uh, cases. That's, I guess, similar to what we're experiencing here in terms of some regional growth in, in COVID over here. And I guess what that is meaning for the grocery supply chain. Um, the article is talking about pal pandemic pallets uh, gaining traction. Uh, and what that is, is, is what it sounds. Uh, the storage units that grocery um, players are investing in uh, to stockpile items around Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, and unsurprisingly, it's, it's ambient products, particularly cleaning supplies, dry goods, uh, the, the report says. Um, the article goes into a bit more detail talking to, to some of the supply base, including Associated Food Stores, uh, who are a, a co-op in the US independently owned. Um, and they're talking about they will never again operate our business as unprepared for something like this. And uh, Kroger as well in the US are talking about the fact that they were only stock keeping for four to six weeks of inventory uh, before the virus took place. And they'll be lengthening that time going forwards. And I guess... 
the reason I picked it is we're seeing quite a, a mix of press over here at the moment in the UK in terms of, I guess, grocery um, players uh, and on Twitter have been really keen to say there's no shortage, do not go out there and panic buy, don't go out and stockpile. But I guess as soon as that gains traction and it's covered in the mainstream press, then all of a sudden there's hype around panic buying. And if that's actually happening or not will remain to be seen. But you're getting players like Morrison's putting uh, limits on items such as toilet roll again already. Um, and I guess it'd be interesting to see if, I guess, if the second wave grows, do consumers have confidence in the uh, food supply chain that there will be enough there as there was in the first wave, although maybe the range wasn't as big as it could be? Or will people start stockpiling again? And with the run up to Christmas and the winter months, what does that actually look like and, and what does that mean? What are you seeing, Josie, in terms of are people stockpiling more of, of ambient products that they maybe wouldn't before? Or is it the same? I mean, I think probably if you if you go backwards a little bit to when the first wave was, was here, I'm saying first wave, there is a second wave. Um, and um, we saw not necessarily stockpiling because a lot of our produce is fresh. Um, so we were seeing like mass buy of all sorts. So, you know, cheeses, um, dairy, like really obscure foods, caviar. You know, suddenly people, like the caviar companies were absolutely snowed under. And you're like, well where are all these people coming from what where were they buying the caviar before or were they buying caviar before so i think you saw a bit of like a, a shift to speciality food maybe and whether that was some of the delis were shut I'm, I'm not sure um but i think second wave the thing i kind of foresee maybe ha what may happen is all the things that people couldn't get hold of in the first wave because of panic buying I think they're going to panic by those again. And I think this is where this is interesting because it's a really, you know, actually what they're saying is these are the things that were popular before. This is what I read from it is these are the things that were popular before we're going to stockpile some of them and, you know, have those, those elements there. And I think my, my, my thought is, you know, couldn't get hold of risotto in the local supermarket for about four months. But is everyone going to go and buy risotto, you know, because they couldn't get it four months ago. How often do you have a risotto? I don't know, but, yeah, I, I think that's then the um, the thought I think might happen. But we we mainly see we mainly see it in the speciality food actually is where the where the came, which is quite interesting really. That's really interesting. And you think pandemic palettes that takes space and where's that space going to come from um but as ranges have been rationalized it'd be interesting to see if we see some of the normal front of the supermarkets rolled over into more warehousing type look and feel that'll that'll have these products what do you think julia yeah i i do think it's it's such a difficult balancing act at the moment as you say you obviously as a as a retailer do want to be taking extra precautions you know the fact that of course the way you look at inventory is will have been changed by this experience I think is is only is only natural um I think supply chains actually were um pretty well prepared and did a very impressive job first time around I think they're going to be even more prepared for for whatever happens next I think the challenge of course is that you know we did have Easter in that sort of first wave period 
But now we're looking at Christmas. You know, you are also from a US perspective, of course, you've got Halloween, you've got Thanksgiving, you've got a lot of, you know, big seasonal events that are really, you know, that, that already put um, these sort of inventory and, and stock keeping systems under pressure. Um, so to then add additional bits of kind of pandemic planning into that, I mean, that's... Um, certainly uh, no no easy no easy feat and of course what we saw as well here here in the UK and elsewhere is that you know inevitably you don't always get it right. I mean, I think there were reports earlier in the, in the summer um, and, and earlier in September of um, supermarkets here having to kind of really cheaply sell off massive bags of flour for instance because they did kind of bring them in because there was such a huge demand and at some point that demand kind of returns to more normal levels and then you're sat on this extra stock and you're having to do kind of you know special sales and and try and get rid of the the stock at a massive discount so from a kind of waste management and kind of surplus management perspective as well it's um you know it's it is a it's it's a nightmare but um yeah i think just the idea of having these pandemic pallets just to be extra prepared, I think, um, yeah, it com makes complete sense under the circumstances. Josie, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for joining us and picking such interesting articles as well. Yeah, thanks thank so much you. for having me. I really enjoy myself. It's been great. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.